welcome to Sex, Drugs, and Spirituality with Sydney DeLorean. That's me. And today I have Paris on the show. How's it going, Paris? It's going okay. Despite the technical difficulties, it's going great. We are having um, a technically difficult morning, but that's just the struggle that we go through to bring people valuable, precious content. So you're, you've been a listener of the show, right? I have. I'm like a huge fan. This is such an honor. It is such an honor for me to um, have you on the show because... I love when people come on the show and then I don't have to do research. I can just ask them about stuff. Um, it really helps me out. So thank you so much. Cool. Well, well, I hope it's good. I hope I'm interesting enough. You have a very interesting story because you are a burlesque dancer, correct? Right. I'm a burlesque dancer and a, and a producer. I produced over 100 shows uh, in the Paris to Go Burlesque Review in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Holy cow. That is a huge body of work. It is. And every single one. So I hold the world record for the most completely different burlesque shows. Every single one of them was different. Every single one of them. And at one point when we first started, when I was too stupid to know better, we used to do um, one, two, three. We would do six shows a weekend that were completely different. No, no, no. I take that back. Four, four shows. Yeah, four shows. That's still crazy. Yeah, that's insane. That's like the naivete of youth where you're just like, I can do everything. Right, exactly. Well, you know, yeah, as soon as it just it started rolling, I just couldn't stop. And I just wanted to do I mean, fortunately, everybody was super passionate all the way to the end. And whatever the conditions were for a show, they just did them. Everybody just did them. People were dying to be in the show. Um. So how long have you been involved with burlesque? So I started off, I was a pinup model and I used to do a little leg and foot fetish stuff um, and European magazines and a, you know, a little bit of BDSM stuff uh, for other magazines. And, and, um, and then somebody had just said, made the mention of the word. They said burlesque. And I was like, ooh, what's that? And it just like, it totally seemed like my jam given the pinup, you know, modeling the pinup. Just, I'm, I'm a huge fan of pinup art. Anyway, so then I, I like read everything I could get my hands on about burlesque because it wasn't exactly relevant. This was like um, 20 years ago. And um, and so, yeah, so so what I was reading, I wasn't reading about anything that was happening now. And all I found was like the Sally Rand stuff. And, and um, you know, the we have a lot of like really amazing women who, uh, you know, who tore it up so that we can do burlesque today. You know, I mean, they used to get arrested, you know, repeatedly just to do this art form. Anyway, so all I could find was like the historical stuff. And I was like, well, where do I do this? And so one of the only places that allows you to take your clothes off in public is a, a strip club. So I started doing um, feature entertaining, mostly on the East Coast, because nobody really got what I was doing west of the Mississippi, which was fine. And so like DC area, Anyway, so, so I did a feature entertaining in a burlesque style uh, way back in the day because that's the only place, too, where you were going to get paid to do it. And so I was like this, you know, all these bikini girls would come up and then I was like this over-the-top, you know, 50-foot-long feather boa, you know, stripper that would come out and, um, and do this, like, elaborate, like, one, you know, one-man show kind of uh, that was just a – there was – uh, over the top kind of vaudeville in my particular personal style is uh, I'm like old school I like the vaudeville and old like when I go to Vegas I don't want to go to the big shows I want to go to the shows where the girls bought their makeup at Walgreens you know like uh, I like some I like some like back to the roots style of burlesque to me that's what it's all about but that's that's my particular interpretation nothing I say is right it's just my perspective you know so anyway, yeah, so we did all of these shows. I'm just having a wild time picturing it because anyone who's ever been in a strip club, um, like what the performance that happens at a strip club is so different from burlesque. It is. It's little bikinis. It's just a, a thong and a like a, a little bralette. And it's pretty bare bones. There's not a there's a lot of, um, let's say, athleticism in stripping, but there's not. Um, sure. There's not a lot of theatricality. So picturing that contrast of having normal strippers doing their thing and then you come in and you're doing this elaborate 
theatrical show. How did people react to that? Uh, mostly good. Girls, never, uh, girls, you know, um, they, they didn't. They, I, I was like, you know, because it's like getting hit in the face with like a disco ball, you know, um, it, and and you know, like it, it's just different. It, it's definitely. Um, um, people most, like I said, west of the Mississippi, people just didn't get it. They thought I was like weird, you know, they thought it was so drag queeny, just bizarre. Yeah. It's like, oh, we're here to see hot chicks. And now we have like a weird chick and like, it, it's confusing to the boner, I guess. <laughs> Is it though? I mean, I could tell you after doing a lot of burlesque shows, the boner, the boner knows what the boner wants. You know, it, it just, it knows. And there's usually no changing its mind. It just, it's programmed from birth or not, not necessarily from birth, but I think it's definitely programmed with life to want what it wants. And, you know, granted the perspective of the, per, the you know, the performer is, you know, one, one performer, which is like the regular stripper, which is, you know, they, they did definitely, those are queens. Their, their objective is different than a burlesque dancer, for sure. The, you know, the burlesque dancer wants to titillate as well, but, you know, it's just different. Did you have any experience with normal stripping before you started featuring as a burlesque dancer? I did. It was very short-lived, but I did. Um, yeah, and, and my style from the beginning, like, I had these, like, ideas of what a stripper did. I hadn't spent much time in those types of clubs before that. As a matter of fact, like, I, I mean, I spent my early, being an early, you know, adult, just being super judgy, coming from like a very religious back, you know, upbringing and background, very conservative, very Mexican, very, you know, it, it was just like, I had a bad attitude. And so it took a lot to get me to, to you know, um, yeah, I, I mean, but my objective from the, from the go was always to do burlesque. But yeah, I definitely, I remember like the first time I walked into a strip club to, to dance, this stripper looks at me and she goes, I need you to take everything you have on and throw it in the trash. And she was Whoa. like, this is how you do it. You know? Oh yeah. Yeah. And she was right. She was right. Um, and she's the reason that, that I'm Paris. She named me Paris and I've always been Paris since then. But yeah, she was like, and I've had to do that since then, you know, go up to a girl and just like uh, go, you know what? Everyone else... While everyone else is laughing at her, I've gone, you know, sweetheart, let's just uh, let's start from square one and then you go into your own lane in your own style, you know. But yeah, it, it was definitely I, I didn't make a lot of friends to start off with. That's never been my objective, you know, um, in, in that environment. Uh, I was about being I was about entertaining. I've been an entertainer since I was a kid. I'm just um, there's no other place in the world that I'm more comfortable on than a stage for sure. Okay, so by the time it came around to doing burlesque and performing at strip clubs, you weren't, you didn't have the stage fright or anything like that. You were very comfortable performing for an audience. Absolutely. It's made me a good teacher, too, I think. I do understand stage fright. I have had, like, crippling stage fright probably three times in the weirdest of situations. Um, but I, because I don't really have it, I think that I'm able to help um teach it in a way that just like pretend it's not there let's not even address it that's just you know let, let's not address it let's let's talk about why you're here um and, and so like the whole concept too of um of realizing and and training your brain to think in terms of how you affect the world not how the world affects you it gets rid of that that stage fright i've always had it but but it was really emphasized during a time that um i was in a wheelchair uh previous to me doing the burlesque thing. Well, well, I'd already done it in strip clubs, but I wanted to do my own thing. I wanted to do a review. I wanted to do it outside of the strip club because they, you know, I mean, it was either hot or cold. They either look, uh, it's kind of like in real life, you either love me or you hate me. And so uh, I wanted to do it on my own terms. And so, um, the venue definitely dictates like the feeling of it. And I can say from personal experience, like playing in bands and what I do musically is more I don't know it's weird art stuff and so like playing in punk clubs always sucked for me because like the audience isn't here to see what I'm offering but then if I right, played right, right. at an art show or art venue people were more uh, open to 
uh, I don't know, appreciating or at least paying attention to what I was doing, you know? Right, right. It's it's like being a like a party crasher, you know? I, I was like this over, I was this extra over the top party crasher. I always felt like that. Like that wasn't, and and customers would sometimes, you know, like it's, I'm a smart man's woman. Smart men get me, and um, and so they would, you know, they would approach me and go, "What are you doing here?" why are you here but it was one of the only venues that allowed um me to do that yeah that makes sense so can we circle back around to you being in the wheelchair what happened so what happened was um so uh in the court you know traveling being a traveling showgirl and uh i was on my way to chicago to a club that i had wanted to book really really bad for a long time and i did i booked it so um, on my way to Chicago, uh, I had just checked out of my hotel in Springfield, Missouri, and um, and I got run off the road. It, it was crazy, oh like in all these cars. Yeah, so so we got we were like jockeying behind this car that was um, weaving, and um, it continued to weave, and we just kind of like kept you know changing places. I don't know, for maybe half an hour behind this car that was going slow and was hogging both, you know, riding the middle lane and and just driving erratically. And so I, um, I, you know, I figured, well, my balls are bigger than everyone else's in this line. So I floored it and tried to pass them. And that didn't work out. My front right tire caught the gravel on the side of the road and whipped my car, uh, my, my rental car into the median of this highway. And I was going like maybe 90 miles an hour at that point. So then I hit the brakes. I hit. I wound up hitting a grove of trees really, really, really hard. And I could see the bottom of my left foot. I could just looking down at my feet. I could look. I could see the sole of my left foot. And then on my right leg, I could see the like my bone, like the oh in, my like, my, like the cross section of my of my distal fibula and my bone. And um, I didn't call 911, which was weird. I called my friend back in Albuquerque to like get in this car and give me a ride. And because uh, I was going to go to my gig in Chicago. And um, anyway, while I'm trying to make these arrangements, a trucker, you know, pulled over and came over. And I, I realized that I needed him to hold my legs because I was holding my legs up with one arm. And then I remember being on a couple of, I was on two different helicopters. And then I woke up and I had all this like metal gear on my legs. And uh, it was so surreal. I didn't believe it was real until they brought in a chaplain that confirmed that this was really what was happening and this was really my life. And, I, you know, I was lamenting to him. Like, uh, I was telling him, I don't litter, man. I don't litter. And I respect my elders. And I'm a good person. And my legs, you know, one of my favorite DJs used to say, you know, about my legs, uh, you know, legs that go all the way up to heaven and back down again. My press, everybody talks about my legs, and so for my legs to be broken was devastating initially, you know, for sure. It was devastating. I couldn't believe it. It's a huge part of your identity, and all of a sudden, the, the future of them is in question. Absolutely. And at the, you know, at the peak of like, I mean, I've never made as much money as I did during that time. I, w- I made stupid money, you know, stupid money during that time. And all of a sudden, it had come to a halt. Uh, as a matter of fact, like a few days after I got home from the hospital, one of my best friends, Marin in Baltimore, uh, she uh, cut my hair into a mohawk because I couldn't stand on the on the plane ride from Missouri to Albuquerque how pitifully people looked at me. And I was like, this is not going to work. So I shaved my hair into a mohawk, and um, and definitely just kind of. Uh, you know, kind of struggled my way financially, whatever. I had no idea how how um, long-lasting this situation was going to be. It wound up being over a year. Um, oh my gosh! I, I I will say this about the about the mohawk. My former co-host Shu used to always say that every woman should shave her hair into a mohawk at one point in her life. I agree. I absolutely agree. You know what? I wanted to do it when I was pregnant because I think that that's like a, that's like the best look, you know, is like mohawk and pregnant. 
but my career uh, at that at that time didn't allow for it. But to me, I think I think that that should be a rite of passage that should come with being pregnant is getting a mohawk. They're very freeing, I, you know. I fully support that. Um, okay, so you're in a wheelchair for a year. Did you have the things where it's like the pins are sticking into your leg and coming out? Yes. And- yeah, I did. I, it was so like punk rock anyway, what was going on like below, you know, my knees um, with all this metal. Yeah, the halos that people wear when they break their necks. Um, that's what I had. And um, and it was heavy as shit. You could, I could only sleep. I could only sleep in one position. I couldn't move an inch ever when I did sleep. And for, you know, initially I couldn't like my legs were thinner than my arms are now. It was, you know, the atrophy like happened almost immediately and I watched my legs like shrivel and I would do things to, you know, to kind of keep some muscle in the leg, you know, that I, the, my legs where I could um, move them. But yeah, I mean, I was spread eagle. I had to be spread eagle to keep my legs away from each other in a wheelchair for a long time. And all of a sudden I went from being five foot ten to being like small in the world. And that's where... Um, people look down at me for, for eye contact and, and, you know, all of a sudden I was extremely vulnerable. It, it was a trip. It was a trip. It definitely changed me. Um, I mean, yeah, that is a wild experience. I can't imagine. Um, so you, were you, did you have to like move back in with your parents? What, who was taking care of you or helping you during this time? So, well, you know, it was weird. So, I, I mean, so I lived by myself for a long time. You know, and I was nickel and diming my my landlord, you know, with money because all of a sudden I didn't have like, you know, all this money. You know, initially when I moved in there, I would tell him here, you know, here's a couple months. Here's like three months. I don't know when I'm going to be back in town again. And, you know, it was I was a good tenant. And so I remember one day after he'd come and I gave him like 200 bucks of my rent and he wrote me a receipt. And the minute he drove away, he said, my wife and I are fighting over you living here. He said, I can't afford this. He goes anymore. He said, and every time I come over to get some rent from you, I'm going to tell you that I need you to move out and ask you to move out without me going into the legal route. He goes, but I can't do it because I look at you and it makes me feel so bad. He goes, so, so he called me to tell me this. And so I moved out. Oh my God. I know. I mean, I thought it was so sweet and so beautiful and I totally got it. You know, I, I got it. So, um, so I lived with like, um, I lived with different people, you know, all of a sudden, um, you know, when you're vulnerable after being strong and being like free, you know, I I was all over the place. I was traveling, you know, I I was all over the place. And then all of a sudden I didn't, I couldn't move from the spot that I was sitting in unless somebody helped me. And, And that's how it was for a long time, you know, even to use the restroom, all of that. So I mean, my friends and them were there-ish, and my family was not there. My father and I did not speak during that time, which is a whole other episode. Um, but uh, but I I lived with like um, I don't know the most uh, the black sheep of every black sheep that I knew took helped me and was and was golden to me and did amazing things for me during that time for sure. Probably because they can relate to being down and out. And like, I I find that people who have experienced struggle tend to be more helpful towards others because like they know, they know what it's like to really be helpless. It's also weird too, because like being in a wheelchair is a gauge for like, um, who's legit compassionate and who's a predator. And that, that happens inevitably. It happened inevitably with almost everyone I know, you know, there's something that just kind of happens when, you know, I, during the, the course of all that time that I couldn't walk, I couldn't justify the space that I took up or the oxygen that I was breathing in. I felt like because, um, because I, I felt like I wasn't contributing in as much as I used to. I, I didn't have as much money or I was like, whatever, you know, like I just felt burdensome and I felt my self-esteem definitely um it had i struggled for sure every day so every day one of the things that i did and i highly advise it to anybody 
as a life hack is when you are physically ill, when you don't feel good for any reason, whatever. So when I was in a wheelchair, I went to great lengths to take a shower and to put on makeup and I had the longest, most fluorescent ghetto nails and I would use my wheelchair, it would freak people out because my nails would look so long that, that, that something, like it just seemed impractical. But, but I'm, I got up, I brushed my teeth, I bathed, I did all of that every single day because one day that I skipped, I felt like shit and it just made me mm -hmm. want to plummet downward, you know? So I, I definitely think that like, um, make yourself look good and feel good and be clean when you don't feel good and it definitely helps. It definitely helps. But, but that was like one of the commitments I made. It's that's really uh, important, I think, because um, part of like we have a mental health epidemic in our country and I, it's because our culture is sick. But I think it's really important, um, uh, like personally for me, struggling with depression, um, even when I don't want to shower, when I don't want to go to the gym, when I don't want to put on makeup and do my hair it's really important to me the routine of doing those things because I figure right you know you treat you treat yourself with love and respect even if you aren't currently feeling it because you know it's part of the process of building self-love self-respect is like okay even though I don't if you know, even though I don't feel like being kind to myself today or taking care of myself today, I'm going to do it because like, it's important. And like, I need Absolutely. to treat myself like a valuable person. Right. I think language is huge. You know, in my house, my daughter and I, I, there are certain words that are banned from this house. Um, you know, my daughter has, she has a curse, you know, she has a curse pass because she's been through some shit too. She's nine. She doesn't use it, but um, but we don't say stupid and we don't say hate. Those are two words that like um, we just don't use. And I think that like um, one of the reasons, you know, my legs were busted the fuck up and, um, and nobody really thought I would walk again. And I was really, really loving to the parts of my body that were injured during that time and I never like loathed them. I never said stupid legs. I never like, I, I never used any language with my legs than, than uh, language that I wanna hear, you know, used with me for sure. And, and I think that that was also a huge thing. So you treated them with like a nurturing attitude rather than a negative attitude. Absolutely, and I'll even like approach a stranger if I see them like, um, just like cursing a part of their body that's giving them difficulties. I'll, I'll like, you know, be real intrusive and go, you know, be loving to that part of your body, you know, just give it a break, give it some compassion. It, it's, you know, I, I, that's why, I mean, I don't take like um, aspirin or Tylenol very often. It takes a lot for me to do that just because I feel like you're muffling the screams and you have to pay attention. Just like I wouldn't lock my child in a room if she was, you know, crying I want to listen to her cries and I think that the body does that you know I think it talks to us more than we than we know how to listen or that we're taught how to listen to it for sure yeah it's something that's been coming out um in psychological studies where there's there's a school of psychology where they believe like a lot of the like mental illness symptoms are actually it's physical ailments and they're screaming out through your brain so like um, this one psychiatrist I listened to an interview said, like, if you're feeling anxious, check in with your body. Like, yeah, you know, what did you did you eat bad food? Do you need to drink water? Do you need to go for a little jog around the block? Like, what's going on with your body that's causing yeah. your mind to feel this way? Because they, right, you know, absolutely. they communicate to and from each other. You know, I'll tell you, like, I mean, I have an experience with my daughter. She's allergic to red dye number 40. And how I found out about that was like watching her behavior after she, you know, when she was a baby, she'd get like a UTI, you know, when she was like, uh, you know, two, three, four years old, she'd get a UTI every once in a while and she would be miserable. And I just always thought, well, that's just how she is when she's sick. And then I realized as she was like maturing, she was like five when I noticed that she was acting some kind of like uh, crazy volatile kind of way the moment I gave her this antibiotic. And so I stayed up all night like researching 
and talked to the phys- uh, the pharmacist the next day. Sure enough, she's allergic to red dye. And so she just straight up doesn't. Oh. Yeah. And so let me tell you, man, I watched her kindergarten class in, on uh, one particular day during snack time. I watched that class all have like, I don't know, fruit roll-ups and, and a red Capri Sun or something. The cacophony that came off of this classroom was insane. And I, I, I told the teacher's assistant that day, I said, look, look at what just happened with all that red dye. You know, and, and the kids were like, you know, don't touch me, you're hurting me. I'm not looking at you, you know, crying, whining, just being like super miserable or just like, I don't know, irritated. And, and I'm convinced, I, I watch it all the time with kids. And I think that most children consume red dye and are labeled difficult or, uh, I don't know, I just think that, that a lot of uh, behavioral shit with children could be solved if that was like removed. And it sounds like such bullshit. Like I'm not one of those moms that's like, you know, that it's super granola or anything. But uh, I mean, I've straight, I've seen it. I see it all the time. And I point it out to people all the time. You can, you can set your watch to it. Kids should not be eating that shit. Well, it's a, it's a fundamental flaw in the way that we think about, um, behavioral issues is that we blame the individual like so if a kid is acting out you blame the kid instead of blaming environmental influences right and it's like or us yeah did the yeah. kid get yeah did the kid eat something did he not get enough sleep is he dealing with stress at home like and so we rather than say oh we have like a sick society and like our food is bad and our culture is bad we just blame individuals who erupt from it and like it's not an it's not effective at treating or preventing mental illness or right problems. right well and i think what happens with parents there's this weird freaking ego thing that happens with parents and that they get real defensive if the principal asks you know a parent to go into the principal's office that that parent is usually kind of defensive right away you know we get defensive and I, I think that some parents are, you know, are younger souls than others. And I think that, um, that they're just so quick to defend their own parenting or whatever that they don't want to like, um, they don't want to listen, but, but I'm telling you it's, and I'll, you know, it's one of the brainwashing things that happens with marketing. You know, all, most of the, the foods that are like marketed to kids all have that shit in it. Pepperoni, anything in a can, you know, it, it sucks. But that's what, I mean, even I know that what I find appetizing sometimes is red and it doesn't need to be red, you know? Yeah, it does not need to be red. Um, no. Okay, so so back to, so your healing process, um, it's a year long that you aren't walking and like right. during, I mean, that gives, that gives you a lot of time to think, like... It definitely does. You're like uncertain if you're going to walk again or if you're going to need like a cane, I assume, is what... Is that what the doctors were thinking? Like, no, they, I mean, my, my physical therapy was straight up about me living the rest of my life in a wheelchair. It wasn't about um, walking again. Uh, I mean, so I still have really you know, just yeah. Oh, definitely. They were definitely. They were like these these breaks will heal, but like your legs are not gonna work. Right. That that, that was definitely the direction, and, and it was it was as if I had no voice. It was as if I spoke and there was like a mute button on my voice. Like, what were you thinking? Were you thinking like, okay, I'm never going to walk again? For me, I, I, I find one of my best assets is like, I have an oppositional defiant attitude where I'm like, oh no, I'm going to walk again. Don't worry about it. Right. I, I'm not that way usually. I, I mean, I'm pretty like, I, I'm pretty much of a pacifist and I'm pretty like polite and I, I you know, I'll go along with some shit sometimes. But there was no doubt in my mind that was something that I was that I knew as much as I knew who I was. That I, I mean, I danced in my dreams, and that's what I would tell my my uh, my doctors. I'd be like, I dance in my dreams. I have too, you know, and I had too many ideas in my head. And so during this time, you know, I, I just like busted out. I found my niche as a burlesque dancer, you know, um, and all of a sudden it was brought to a halt. I never stopped creating. I had to stop listening to music. I could only listen to classical music during the time that I was in a wheelchair because otherwise my body would dance in my mind. And because I couldn't move in the way that I was naturally organically wanted to with music, I had to like, I didn't listen to music. I didn't listen to it at all, which is like, um, it, it was weird. But, but when I would hear a glimpse of something, like I'd be like, oh yeah, 
I'd have some great idea. And so I, I like, um, I accumulated like all of these different like themed, I think burlesque ideas. And then I realized, well, I, I, I discovered, um, uh, I, I discovered the book by Dita Von Teese, uh, The Art of Teas. And I, I'd re I found it in a Rolling Stone magazine, you know, a review of this book. And I was like, oh, my God, this is happening. This is happening right now. I am not the only freak show uh, on the earth that is doing this. And so, um, yeah, so then I went out and I went to a couple of burlesque shows and um, they, it wasn't my vision. It wasn't my vision at all. I, I saw like, I don't know, girls wearing trucker hats and playing drums on their stomachs and kind of like making fun of themselves. And that's not that wasn't my vision and so you know burlesque the idea of doing burlesque and the idea of teaching women and the idea of doing like i didn't think anybody in the whole wide world was going to go along with my idea of doing the show so i figured i better like kind of learn how to walk again so that i can at least you know do the the heavy work the heavy lifting for the show that i i, vis I envisioned it in my mind and i wanted to create something for women to feel empowered and to feel unapologetically sexy for the rest of their lives in a in a way that that uh, that they could do it with grace until they're really old and you know that, that you could look at women and go you know these women and go wow you, you're amazing even when they're older because I think we're such ageists too I, I don't um, I, I don't think that we I don't think we have an expiration date as women just because our ovaries like eventually like uh, stop producing you know like I think that we have value more than ever in the timeline of history than right now. Older women are the shiz. We're the we're the golden. Mm -hmm. We're golden. I mean, that is something that is interesting, um, specifically in terms of of sexuality and sexual, like a, a perception of sexual attractiveness. Is that women, once they're outside of breeding age, are no longer considered desirable, and that is like half of our lives really you know and i know so i feel like burlesque yeah. because it has a focus it's less about performing towards the male gaze like and towards like the very carnal male gaze which is my interpretation of like a strip club but burlesque because yeah. it's an art form i it seems to have more room for a range of age a range of body type because the charm comes from the and the sexiness comes from the performance it's, it comes from someplace deep i'm not really even sure where it comes from if it comes from your heart or it comes from your soul I'm not even sure, but, but there's a, you know, when we are unapologetically, men are unapologetic about being men. And, you know, I know that like, even like my generation, you know, the generation X, like the women are still apologizing for having good ideas anywhere. And, um, and with burlesque, you don't apologize. It, it's, um, you know, it, there's a, there's just, this is who I am, but, but to, but to own it enough to say this is a gift that I'm sharing with you to an audience, it takes a lot. It takes a lot to get from a woman that would never shake, you know, a woman that that has been told by religion or whatever, her culture or whatever, that her sexuality is a secret. It's not a secret. It's how we all got here, you know. And so there's an arsenal that women have that men don't have that's like badass i think that you know we're the ones that we run the world but um but but to, you know to be able to say that and to and to make part of that arsenal your sexuality and your sensuality uh, i mean oh my, what's going to come next say you know saying what you want when you have sex oh my god you know i mean there's a whole other it's a new world with burlesque and i and i hope that like even if women that that attended my show that have attended my shows I have taken some of that home you know I've, I've opened I've opened probably 50 of my shows with just like the earnest hope I, I opened the show with talking about how I want everybody there to have sex afterwards in multiples of three four five two one whatever but but I want them to feel good afterwards that's been important to me you know what you're saying is when you, when people come to see you perform you want them to be inspired to like take some of that energy away for themselves Yes, exactly. I want them to go home and have babies. Um, I want them to have like, yeah, I want them to. I, I would tell people all the time at the beginning of the show, if you look at my YouTube videos, Paris to go, go burlesque review. I, I, I'm like, 
I want you to go home and have sex with the wrong person. I want you to go have sex with the right person. I want you to, you know, have sex with a new person, whatever. Um, but I do think that, like, I think that if we all had sex regularly in a way that um, that made us less awkward about talking about it and um, in a way that, like, um, we communicated better, I, I think we would all get along better. I, I do. I do, I do. Why do you think people have a hard time communicating about sex? I think, um, just in my perspective, and this little corner of this big bad world, um, I think it's, I know for me, it, it was a traditional religious, um, having a traditional religious upbringing and being told that talking about sex was taboo. And, you know, what I think what religion did is it created these, like, do's and don'ts, and, and it's okay to touch yourself, and it's not okay, and, and whatever. And, um, and I think that they have, uh, they've pagan, made it pagan somehow. They've, um, you know, and especially women, that's not ladylike to talk about sex. But, but, but I think it's just, I don't know. I know for me, it's, you know, being... Tahana, you know, like with a Mexican background, and I was a Jehovah's Witness growing up, you know, at which, uh, yeah, you didn't, heaven forbid, anybody say the O word. Sex was not to enjoy, it was to have children, you know? Mm-hmm. And that sucks because sex is yummy, you know? Well, and it's like, it's a natural thing that we're supposed to do. It's like as important as getting enough sleep and eating and exercise. But like, I I also have a religious background and it's funny because, uh, so I was, I was raised super religious church six days a week. And then I, I became, you know, a rebellious adult who I'm very comfortable talking about sex in the, in the abstract if that makes sense, like all of my yeah, music yeah. and art deals with sex sure. in an abstract way that's not personal to me. But like I still I'm 35 years old and like I consciously know that like sex isn't dirty or wrong, but I have a very difficult time like even talking to Zach about stuff like just being able to say like oh I want I want this I don't want that like just expressing my own sexual I guess desires I have a yeah. really hard time doing that and like I, it's it's really I don't know like what the hang-up is and why is it you know that I feel bad or dirty or like I I shouldn't be expressing these things I don't it's weird I, I know I know and I think though that like um when you delve into like um like being more free there's you know about like and, and like developing language in in discuss, you know about sex i think that like it's one of those things where you are soiled forever kind of mentality you know in, in finally saying what it is that you want which is such bullshit you know it, it's such bullshit so when we develop language about sex what happens so well i think first of all it helps children that are um, I, you know i hope that my daughter I've told her, you are going to have discussions about sex the rest of your life. And so I want you to be really comfortable in those conversations so that you can effectively communicate what you need, what you want, what has happened, what you would like to happen, what your preference list is, all of that. You know, um, I think it's important. And I think that we have to do that with children. We don't do that with children. We don't do that with them, you know, normally. Uh, it didn't happen with me. And, and so making her comfortable. You're told, like, don't talk about this. Don't say these things. Right. Those are dirty words. Right. And, and so as a, as, a, like, as, as a little girl becomes a woman and her body changes, her feelings change, uh, you know, her desires change, all of these things change. And to not have an outlet or somebody to talk to about those things as they're happening and for them not to be glorified and celebrated is something that I think we owe the next generation of, of females for sure. You know, how is she supposed to like, if she has a predatory situation happen to her, how is she supposed to go, you know, up to somebody like me or, or you know, somebody in authority to say this person, you know, what is my hoo-ha, my, my, you know, ching chang, you know, fuck that. It's my vagina. This is what happened with my vagina and having being comfortable with that language teaches a child to also tell a predator, hey, bro, don't touch me there. Don't touch my vagina. Don't touch my breasts. 
you know. That's a really good point that if um if I I want to say young women, but I guess if young people know what sex is and what it's supposed to be and like whatever, it it prepares them for when bad sex comes along, you know, a predator, you know, um and and it, it empowers them to say no because if you don't know what sex is, it's easier for someone to groom you, you know, towards sexual assault and abuse. Because Absolutely. You, you don't know that it's you don't if you don't know what's right, how do you know what's wrong? Right. Or if you don't know understand that being raped is sex, you know, because you've been taught that sex is something that's very abstract and very and surely just what happened to you just now, you know, or whatever is not rape because you don't know what it is. You don't know what sex is, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I just, you know, that, that's, you know, a, that's a whole other like tangent, but, but I think it's important to like, um, to, to understand since, you know, since females, males, whoever, your children should have, should be comfortable with the terms of sex. They should be comfortable with the terms that describe their emotions. They should be given a wide vocabulary to express themselves. Otherwise, they they'll like. Um, I think it just manifests, um, just I don't know unhealthiness in people. Oh yeah, I mean I'm I'm having a lot of psychological realizations as we have this conversation, um, because like you know I have I have a lot of body dysmorphia, body dysphoria issues, and I think maybe a lot of it does stem from the fact that I was raised super religious and I had a mother who wanted me to be very very thin, and so when puberty happened and I started developing a sexual body, like a, a woman's body, it was like yeah. a betrayal of my form. And it's something that like to this day that I am not comfortable in my own skin because I do have like a hyper feminine body and it makes me uncomfortable. And it probably does date back to like being raised where like sex is shameful and like sexuality is shameful. And like, you know, I, I think that I think that it probably does relate instead of it being like, you know, the hippy dippy way of celebrating your daughter's becoming a woman and like teaching her how empowering that could be. Right, right, right. And I think that like, um, I don't know, I, I think that, you know, we're all uh, the females that I see right now in 2019 are like, um, they're role models without role models, you know, like um, to be a parent that that openly, you know, uses the word vagina um, with my daughter and my daughter is so comfortable with it that sometimes she'll use it like you know we're at line in line at the Home Depot or whatever and she'll be like my vagina has been itching today and I when we get home I want to talk about it you know and you just watch <laughs> you know I, I'm serious she does it all the time but she does it um, and, and I watch like the women around us just like crumble and the men too you know they're just crumbling and they're just dying inside because this child is using this language and so, you know, but yeah, I think that sometimes we stereotype, you know, that kind of like comfortableness with like just being hippy dippy, like you said, or being like overly artsy and bohemian. And it's not, it's, it's legit real life. I mean, ch- things are changing. You know, we as a, a species are changing. We got to change with it. That's a, yeah, that's very interesting. Um, so do you think so with burlesque like it empowers obviously the performers i think you have to be a really bold self-assured woman and you need to know your sexuality very well to be able to do that but then also i think to be in the audience you it you have to have a certain comfort level with sex and sexuality well i think that there's a boldness that exists inside every woman and i can tell you just like uh you know having like dozens working with with several performers several burlesque performers um in each show that everybody's different and everybody um you know what will make one burlesque dancer clutch her pearls you know it is like nothing to another one i mean women are just different and i think that um i do think that this the unapologetic owning of your femininity and your womanly wiles and the things that make you different or the things that make you appealing to uh to uh, that make the, the, that you think are attractive about yourself as well as those things that are appealing to other people uh, i think that they vary you know it's all very and it's it's a matter you know going back to the courts of it's just owning your own shit owning this is me this is what i've got you know um so what would make when you say that some performers will do things 
that they're comfortable with, but others will clutch their pearls. Like, is that because, like, is that in terms of, like, levels of nudity or suggestion in the performance? All of the above, for sure, you know, all of the above. I, I never wanted to, like, participate, be personally in any type of, like, um, lesbian-y whatever, um, you know, like, uh, several years ago right now. I, I, I mean, I'm not saying lesbian-y, but, but, like, any type of flirtatious girl-on-girl stuff, I'll do that now. But there was a time when I wouldn't. At, when I first started doing burlesque in outside of a um, outside of a strip club, it took forever. I never took my bra off. I never showed oh. my areolas. I never did for a long time. I, I want to say maybe two years. The first two years, I never did because I felt like I was in charge of everything. And uh-huh. I felt, I don't know, it's weird, but I just never did. I just never did for two, about probably the first two years of my show. I never, I went down to my bra and that was it. And I knew that I had to like, like finish out my routines, like really on top, like kind of big because I wasn't like flashing boobs uh, at the end, the areolas. I just wouldn't do it. I just, I don't know. I felt like I needed to be the grown up there, I guess. I don't know. But, but you know, things like that. I mean, it can vary. I, I don't like violent shit. I don't like uh, gory stuff. And there's a lot of people that do. It, a lot of that stuff makes me clutch my pearls. It just depends. It's okay. different stuff for different people. Yeah. I can see that. I can see, like, kind of like horror genre type stuff. Yeah, I don't like that stuff. I, I dream really vividly, so I don't even watch horror movies. Like, I'm such an empath. I can't watch anything on TV that's, like, super violent. Or I, I cry over commercials. You can ask my daughter all the time. You know, like, little kids that are in a wheelchair or whatever. It just breaks my heart. Or animals that need to be adopted. I cry like a baby. So I, I'm too sensitive for that shit. I just can't. It's not entertaining to me. I'm with you on that. I've never, I'm the horror, the horror genre doesn't really appeal to me. The friends I know who are really into it also have anxiety problems. And I'm like, dude, if you, if you lean towards anxiety, why is this stuff? Why are you letting this stuff in your head? I don't know. But, um, it's the same stuff that makes people like jump, you know, do bungee cord stuff and like zip lines and stuff. It just, you know, I mean, it's an adrenaline thing. It gets people, uh, some people off. You know? Yeah, I am not an adrenaline person. I am a. I like to live a medium life. I like to stay right in the middle. <laughs> I do not need any of that. Um, so when did you start teaching burlesque? Like, how long were you doing it before you were like, I, I've acquired enough knowledge that I can now help other people on this journey? I think I, I started teaching, like, from the beginning, from the beginning and I've like um I've always taught like um the same way and I and I tell my uh, my disclaimer at the beginning is this isn't necessarily the right way but this is what works for me and um, okay. I, I think yeah from the beginning pretty much but I, I can I do have the ability I have a couple of like really awesome innate like instinctual things and one of them is I can I can see somebody on the street and I can know that they're a burlesque dancer even if they have never really? even entertained the idea. Absolutely, absolutely. I've never been wrong with that, ever, 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 ever. Um, I'm really good at that, but I know if either, and so I've been spurned to like go up to a stranger and say, this is this is what's up. Well, I don't know if you know this about yourself, but this is what's up. And I will teach them how, you know, and basically like I teach how to do a burlesque routine um, because of my own, I mean, a lot of people don't know that I was in a wheelchair for a long time right now. Cause I like rock some heels and, and I do have one leg that's a lot longer than the other, but you would never know by the, I just kind of look like I have like a gangster lean, like an attitude kind of walk about me. But, um, but most people don't know that, but I teach burlesque, um, that there's five events and you like, um, they're landmarks in a song. And you like pin them to five different points in a song. I think three, three minutes, three and a half minutes is the longest that you should do a burlesque uh, routine. And I do five events and it's a matter of getting to those five events that way. Because with burlesque, it's a little bit different type of performance because you are doing, you are, you are un, like, um, you are undoing uh, clothing and then you are discarding it. And a lot of things can go wrong in the course of doing that. So if you've got five events, you have it, 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 the, in one song, then you can recover in between events with something going wrong, like your finger getting stuck in a zipper or just whatever, you know. 
Um, and so that's kind of the model that I've taught. And again, everybody's different. Everyone does it their own way. So I don't know. I think almost from the beginning I, I was teaching it. And then, you know, all of a sudden you've accumulated all this knowledge. I can, I can teach virtually anybody how to get over stage fright for sure. For sure. No matter what your art is. What, what are the five events? Are those like each taking an article of clothing off? Sure. It could be that, you know, um, I believe that you have to like do a build up like a crescendo, you know, with a, with a burlesque piece. I think that, it, um, you know, on a regular like routine or a regular like stage that a, that a stripper does, you know, down the street from where I live right now, you know, with the free lobster lunch today. Um, I think that she's, she's not doing a build up of taking clothes off of revealing and I think um, peeling there's a peeling of clothing that happens with burlesque and so yeah those five events are either uh, a particular like whether it's a glove peel you know off you're peeling off your gloves or fishnets on one it may be like a little small explosion of confetti you know is the next one oh. or so on you know it just kind of depends but I think you go up I, I also teach that, that you, like, do a big bang at the ends of whatever it is. Okay. You want to end on something that just is, like, a jaw dropper. Uh, absolutely. I, I love light-up boobs, and that's kind of, like, that, that's been my thing. I rarely wear pasties as a burlesque dancer. I know how to make them. I make beautiful ones, and I, and you know, uh, I, I think that they look beautiful on other women, but with burlesque, for some reason, I do something else to, to conceal my areolas. But I always, I like, I like them either, you know, I like LED lights lighting up my tits. That's okay. kind of my thing. Yeah. And, and so, I, and every time I go, I'm not going to rely on that this time. I, I know that I can always feel that that's what people are looking forward to is the light up tits at the end. Yeah. Cause it's, it's something that's unique and yeah, they can, they can write home about that. Yeah. You can hear the, Ooh, you know, in, in the audience. And I think I'm probably addicted to, to that. Ooh. Every time I say I'm not going to do it, I wind up doing it anyway. Yeah, because like you're, yeah, it, you're used to that response, you know, and it's like, yeah. it feels there's something I think perform people who haven't performed um don't have uh, a concept. I always say like performing live, it's like playing the audience like an instrument. So like in the same way that you would play a guitar, you're playing a room full of people, and you know how to it, like a good performer knows how to get solicit specific reactions out of them. I mean you're you're conducting sure. a symphony of people really and um it's i think it's a high i think that's something that a lot of performers uh enjoy and get get addicted to right and, and not even necessarily like the external validation portion of it but it's just clicking i think that we all just want to connect with other members of our species you know i do no matter what it is we're doing and so but when you do that as a performer with your audience you click onto each other and there's something super, super elating and beautiful and wonderful, you know, for like this whole room full of people to kind of like be telling you, I see you at the same time you're telling them, I see you too. You know, um, I've worked venues where we walked through the middle of the audience before we got on stage and there was something super magical about doing that because you are literally, you're, you're like soaking in their energy when you go through the middle of them. And then when you're done and you have to go through the middle of them to, to go back to a dressing room, it's like, it's like being showered with orgasms. It's so wonderful. It's so amazing. Um, I think that's my favorite type of like live music or anything to go to is something that's like small and intimate where I feel like I'm occupying the same space as the performer. It's really yes. weird for me to go and see a concert where you're you're not even in the same space. Like there's no connection to what's happening and then to me I'm like, well, I could have watched this on YouTube. I could have just listened to the album because for me the value in a live performance is like feeling like a unique happening happen that is between you and the performer right 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 and the audiences with each other too i think you know what i mean there's something that that's very very fucking cool about when that happens when it's just when it's a sweet spot moment with a show or a show is just like killing it and, and you know i always did like a little break uh, i've always had a little break in, in the middle of my shows and people are outside smoking and talking and they're just their eyes are so wide you know they're so wide and they love 
the connection that they're having with one another as well. I've watched them. You know, I've, I've had videographers that have taped the audiences and I've just watched the audiences during an entire show. I can hear it on the audio, but I'm looking at them and I'm seeing what turns them on and what, what, um, what makes them bored, what makes them just like, you know, you could be super tired, but all of a sudden you get all of this, like, you know, all these endorphins going, I, I like to see what makes them happy and what makes them, you know, I, I appreciate that they've all bought a ticket. And so, you know, they, they should get what they paid for, for sure. You know, and, and it's beautiful to watch audiences like connect together, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's something that brings people together. Like you people sometimes will say, oh, I'd, I'd like to go see this show. I'd like to go to a burlesque show, but I don't have anyone to go with. And I always say, just do what you want to do. Just go by yourself yeah. because you are going to make friends there because the experience of being in that time and place is what's going to bring you together. And like, if you don't have friends who want to do the type of stuff you want to do, the way to meet those friends is actually just to do the thing, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's where you, that's where you find your tribe, you know, that's where you find your tribe. Have you seen that movie Bohemian Rhapsody? I have not seen it yet. Oh my God. You have to see it. So there's this scene, I'm not going to ruin it for you, but there's this beautiful scene where Freddie Mercury is talking to you know, his muse, the, the girl and the, the female that, that's in his life forever, you know, for all of his life. And he's telling her, you know, they're very young at this point. I think they're engaged, even though they wound up never getting married. But, but you know, because he's gay, you know, or he was gay. But, but there's a scene where he's showing her, you know, like a hundred thousand people are, um, I, I, may, I may be wrong on the amount of people that were in the stadium. But the number they were singing "Love of My Life" together. I'm gonna get teary just talking about it. But they they sing "Love of My Life" together, and just like the the um, the chorus of them doing that together is so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And, and he tells her he's showing her like this video of this happening, and he says they're all singing for you, you know, because Aww. that song was for her. Oh my God, it's so beautiful. <laughs> it's, you have to see the movie. It's a really good movie. But yeah, it's it's really cool what happens with audiences. You know, they become one. Yeah, it's a, it's, yeah, it's a bonding experience that I think um, is missed when, you know, now a lot of things are, a lot of media, it's consumed remotely. Um, and that's just the way things are. Like, if you're a musician, just fucking release it on YouTube because, and I can say this from having played live shows where it's like, yeah, I can get 20 people to see me live or I can get hundreds of people to see it online. And it just like, it sucks. But that experience of seeing the thing live is going to be a thousand times better than just watching it on your computer. Like, sure, 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 sure. And I think technology, I hope it doesn't ever take that completely away But I think that how some of that like uh, solidarity is still happening is when you know that somebody's watched a movie that you've watched or they've watched a video on YouTube that you've watched or you share a, you know, a YouTube whatever with each other and just like sharing it. That's one of the things that's like it connects people. It just does. I see it, you know, or you see somebody like, you know, with like, you know, a band that you like, you see them wearing the T-shirt, you know, it makes you feel connected. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So before we wrap up, I want to talk about so you so you started teaching people burlesque. And now do you run a do you when you do your shows, do you have like a burlesque troupe? Are these just dancers that you know from like years of doing it? Like who are these women that you work with? So one of the things that I've done with every show is um, I noticed this working. There were there are certain uh, wisdoms that were gained by by working in strip clubs in my life, and one of the things that was real important to me is that every single performer feel um, equal. Because I saw okay. in strip clubs, like if I owned a strip club, I, I would have girls work for six weeks and then they would have to go away for four weeks, because there's a hierarchy that develops with females, especially especially like really awesome over the top females, especially the type of females that take their clothes off in public. If you don't equal everything out at zero every single time for me, then you have these things where you have a girl going, that's where I sit in the dressing room, that's my song, this is how we do it. 
And I wanted every single performer, no matter how novice or how new or how seasoned they were, to all feel the same every single show. So I've done every show. Most of my shows, I've had like a, I've had a stage kitten that was like a couple of them that are just badasses at what they do. And everybody that worked on my show was a badass at what they did always. And, um, and, and sometimes I could only pay them in hugs and drinks or not even that, but, but they still agreed to work together. And so I've always done every show by invitation every single time. Nobody ever presumed they were in a show ever. Um, and so I do an invitation just because, and I know who's easy to work with and who's not, but I do, and it just kind of depends too on my objective. Sometimes my objective is to, is to showcase new performers and I'll have more new than old, but, um, but, but uh, every, every single one, it just depends. But there's a core, there's a core of girls that I work with and I may or may not work. No one ever presumes they're in a show ever, except for me, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, so I I would assume based on this that Albuquerque then has like a pretty good burlesque scene. Albuquerque has a badass burlesque scene that's still like I, I mean I I did my first show in two thousand eight and we did it next to I probably shouldn't say this but we did, we did it right next door to a high school, you know like a like a really nice charter school right next door and I don't think we were supposed to do that. But that was back in 2008, and a lot of people were coming to the shows and not knowing what was going to happen. And all of a sudden, you saw their jaws drop as like a girl like stands up from a you know a bubbly bathtub, and she's got you know just like a little sparkly g-string on or whatever. Like they didn't. This town, a lot of people did not know what burlesque was. I think it's extremely mainstream here, and I and I see a thriving community worldwide too, for sure. Yeah, one of the biggest. Uh, burlesque showcases in the southwest happens here in february um every year at the chemo theater and it's huge we have you know it's one of the biggest festivals in the country for sure really yeah you should come <laughs> yeah i was gonna say you'll have to send me a link to that because i i mean i think i'm i'm a seven and a half hour drive away like it's not i don't live far yeah i know i know yeah you're pretty close and so, yeah, I, I'm like, um, I, I'm not sure I have this thing that I want to do. I've always wanted to be carried out on a litter, you know, which is like one of those like stretcher things that they carry queens out on. And oh. so I'm trying to figure out this concept to do this burlesque piece for um, submission to the festival. I'm not sure if I'm going to do it, but I, I've hosted nights of it before. You know, it's a great event. Yeah, burlesque is alive and kicking in the world for sure. I think it's always exciting for people to, to discover like that you don't have like whatever is mainstream like if you don't really if it's not really resonating with you whatever's pop culture at the moment like there are so many little subcultures of cool shit that are happening that like you just have to find them so like I, I found out like down the street from me in Phoenix there's a group that does medieval weapons training classes like they just meet weekly at a park and Fuck someone yeah. is an expert yeah and I just was like that's because this couple they go to it and then they come into my bar afterwards and I was they're like oh yeah we do this and I was like that's just wild that there's like enough like there's enough people who like they want to do that and they're keeping that alive and so is it SCA is it like anachronistic uh creative anachronism or society for creative anachronism it's not that that I asked them that and they said no it's something else um and they were like, they were explaining to me the different weapons and like, you know, you can train on these or whatever. And like, I was like, well, that's, that is wild. Um, and I just like, I, I love, I love little nerd communities. I do too. Talk about finding your tribe. Like they are out and you can try things out. You can go to like check out burlesque and see do I like this? Like, and you can check out different things and kind of like surf around till you find your group. Yeah, for sure. Or also create your own, you know, create your own. There's a lot of, you know, you could do meetups, find your tribe. If you're not finding them in like, you know, you're, you know, like uh, in gigs or whatever, like around your city, or maybe they're not in your city. Maybe you need to like travel out. But I think um, just proactively searching for your tribe, it makes the whole like life thing a lot more fun, you know, for sure. Yeah, and don't, like, I just don't feel like you're a weirdo just because you aren't connecting to people at, like, your stupid office job. Because, like, 
I think everyone's been there where you're just like, man, I feel really lonely. Like, I'm not, am I a weirdo? I'm not connecting with people. Like, I'm not making friends at work or I'm not making friends at school. And it's like, well, maybe those just aren't your people. Like, you're fine. There's nothing wrong with you. You just haven't found your people yet. Um, That's my little anti-talk for the day. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. Example, furries. Come on, you know, if they're connecting, you can connect, you know. Yes, exactly exactly um all right well i'm so glad that you did this episode with me today i think people are gonna really love it oh thank you thank you for having me like i said i'm uh i'm so honored i'm such a i'm such a super fan of yours and um yeah i really enjoyed it i really enjoyed talking to you Good. And oh, and everyone go check out. So you're on Instagram as Paris Agogo, and then you're also on YouTube as Paris Agogo. I am. I'm on Facebook too. I, I'm try, I don't know what I'm, I, I'm like on hiatus from Facebook or something. I, I even took it off my phone, but I'm still there. And we have a page there. And um, yeah, so um, and but whatever's going happening. But uh, as far as burlesque, yeah, Paris Agogo is where you'll find me. All right. Well, everyone go check out Paris's work. Follow her. And um, you want to let everyone know to have a happy hump day? I do. Have a happy hump day every day. Every day that ends with Y.